Um, yes, so, um, everybody enjoy the Super Bowl last week? No. No. Huh? Oh, did you now? And what did you win for that bet? Oh, okay. Okay, rock on. I went and watched it for like five seconds and went to No, okay. We just snapchatted the whole time and played Flappy Birds. There you go. Um, they deleted it? Because the pipes from the game were directly taken. Yeah. Yeah, I... Interesting. Well, there you go. Life in the tech world, Flappy Bird. Dude's making bank. Um, so, who was pulling for Detroit? I mean, not Detroit, Denver. Why did I say Detroit? Denver? Last week. Okay, who was pulling for Seattle? Davin was pulling for Seattle, right? <laughs> you were pulling for the commercial. You know, there weren't a lot of great, funny commercials this okay, year. The Budweiser one was huge. With the horse and the dog. The Doritos commercials were the best. I'm just saying. Yeah. yeah. Um, maybe I remember that. I'm not sure that I do. The one with the little kid in the time machine, the Doritos that one. So that guy actually is that he did that at home. Like Doritos had a competition for who could do the best Super Bowl commercial, and he won. He won like a million dollars for for the competition because that's right. And that was a hilarious commercial. It was great. Um. All right, so this week we're going to finish Romans chapter 5. Next week I'm going to be in Dallas for a conference. So Sunday night next week there's going to be a video shown here on, um, on abortion in the United States. And so um, we're going to invite parents and students and anybody in the church who wants to come take part in that. Um, another church that we are close with in Angleton is showing that film tonight. And then hopefully we're going to get to borrow it from them and show it next week. So um, so we will still have the gathering. Um, it'll just kind of be a different format. It'll be a good breaking point. We've got ending chapter 5 this week. We'll pick up chapter 6 when I'm back the following Sunday. So, cool deal? All right, Romans 5. Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. Beginning in verse 12. Therefore... Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God, and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For by the transgression of the, transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. 
So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. First, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. And the law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So in the last, in the previous verses of chapter 5, we've been talking about what? What was Paul talking about in, in 5, 1 through 11? We only said it every week for like the last four weeks. And nobody remembers. Perfect. So the benefits of justification, right? Paul was sharing with the Christians in Rome and the people in Rome the benefits of justification by faith. He had argued for the first four chapters of Romans that it's not by works that you are saved, but it's by faith. And then the natural question that people were going to ask is, so if it's not by works, how do we know we're saved? Like, what? there's no gauge, there's no measure for us to see how we're doing on the, on the grand scheme and the scale of things. And so Paul says, let me show you how that you know. And here are the benefits that you receive because of justification by faith. And it's so much better than the way you think or the way you've been trying to follow that of works leading to salvation. And So Paul in the first 11 verses talks about the benefits of justification by faith. But he's going to end the chapter with something even greater. He kind of leaves the whole benefits thing and is going to go what justification mean, by faith means for the entire world. For everyone who has ever lived, what justification by faith means. Not only does our faith in Christ bring about benefits, but more importantly, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection overcomes the effects of the fall. That Christ will restore everything to its original condition before Adam sinned. And so that's what Paul is going to go to. He's going to begin to talk about what Adam did and what Christ has done to restore us and to restore the world back to its original state. So he begins in verse 12 with what Adam has done. With what Adam has done. Adam's sin brings death to all. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And so Paul first says, Adam's one act of sin has spread to the entire world. When you read that, there are some questions that might arise. Questions that might come into your mind. Wait, who sinned? Let's go back to Genesis 2. Let's go back to Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 to understand this act of sin. We talked about it early on um, last semester when we covered the grand narrative of the Bible, the story um, of the Bible. We, we began in Genesis um, 1, 2, and 3. Look at Genesis 2, verse 15 with me. Genesis 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man 
and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So there we have the command that God gave and the prohibition that God gave and then the result of breaking the prohibition. Okay. So the first question that comes to my mind, maybe it doesn't even enter your mind, but the first question that comes to my mind is, if Adam and Eve, or if Adam at this point, Eve's not around yet, um, but if Adam and God are just enjoying the garden, enjoying this great fellowship together, and nothing's wrong with the world at all, then why does God give this command to Adam to not eat of the tree? It seems as though, like, if he didn't give the command... There would be no law to break, so sin wouldn't enter the world. So if God, knowing that Adam was going to break the command, gave the command, well, why did he do that? It seems like God was wanting Adam to sin. Hold on one second. It, it seems like God was wanting Adam to fall into sin, right? At least that's what it would seem to me on first glance. Why does God even give the command to sin? Here's the answer. Obedience is required to fully enjoy a relationship with God. Obedience is required to fully enjoy a relationship with God. Without a command given and without obedience to be given back to God, Adam couldn't fully enjoy his relationship with God. See, God giving the command wasn't about Adam falling into sin. It wasn't so that God could, could catch him and that he could punish him and that he could punish the rest of the world. It was because obedience is required to fully enjoy God. And God wanted Adam to experience full joy in their relationship. And so God gives this command. And then we go on to Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. He comes to Eve, right? He's talking snake deal. And they, they start having this conversation, right? And Eve is tempted to eat from the tree. And the serpent tells her, did God really say you shouldn't eat from the tree? And she said, actually God said, we can eat of any of the tree in the garden except the one in the middle. But the day you eat from it or touch it, you will die. She adds a little bit to God's restriction there. And the serpent said to the woman, you won't surely die for God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan tempts Eve with the idea that she can be like God. Well, that's a good desire, right? She thinks, well, I mean, we're supposed to have good fellowship with God. Being like God is a good thing, right? And so she is tempted in that way. And humans' desire ever since has been to be like God. We set ourselves up in pride and arrogance, and we want to be like God. It's one of our greatest sins. And so Eve, seeing the tree, seeing that it was good to eat, she takes and she eats of the fruit. And then look what it says in verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. She gave to her husband with her. 
So why does Adam get blamed when Eve is the one who seems to be the one that was deceived, right? She seems to be the one that sins first. She takes from the fruit of the tree. But Adam was with her. And 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Adam was responsible for the actions of Eve. He was supposed to be there to protect and to lead Eve. And he stood by and watched her as she was tempted by the serpent. He was complacent. He didn't do what he should have done and step in and protect her from the temptation that was coming. But he stood by and just took part in it. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The second reason that Adam is guilty here is because Eve was actually deceived. Eve was lied to by the serpent and she fell into deception. Adam willingly took part in the sin. We have nowhere in Scripture that says Adam was deceived. He knew exactly what was going on. And he took part. Adam was not deceived, 1 Timothy 2.4 says, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And so we have in 1 Timothy 2.4 the Bible telling us that Adam wasn't deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing and he transgressed the law that God had given him. He disobeyed. What God had said is, the day that you eat of the tree or... Eat of the tree, you will surely die. That's right. So we come to Romans 12, or Romans 5 and verse 12. And Adam sins and he dies. But another question that should arise out of Romans 5 verse 12 is why do we get the punishment for Adam's sin? Why do we receive the punishment if it was Adam's deal? I wasn't in the garden. If I was there, I wouldn't have eaten, right? But, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's the arrogance in us that, that rises up when we read that, right? Well, if I had been there, I would have just obeyed God. I mean, right now, all I have is the Bible, but God was like there talking to them. And they, they have fellowship with God. If God was like in the room with me and he said, don't do something, I wouldn't do it. I would obey. So why do I get the punishment that Adam is guilty for? Because Adam is our representative. Adam is our representative. He is the first man that is made. And so he represents all of humanity at that time on the earth. Just like we have parents who represent us. They're they're our representatives, our family. Right? They're over us. We are products of them. And so they represent us, our leaders in Washington, D.C., who we vote for and send to Washington. They represent us and the decisions they make there have a direct effect on how we live and what we can and cannot do, right? And so um, in just that same way, Adam is humanity's representative. He is the representative for us all. And when he falls, we all fall. When he chooses to sin against God, we all choose to sin against God. The fancy theological term for that is Adam is our federal head. It's our federal head, our representative. When he sins, the effects of his sin come to us all. Paul goes on to explain the effects of Adam's sin. 
that death is a result of Adam's sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. This means physical death. Genesis 3. You will surely die. This means spiritual death. Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But understand this. Physical death in Genesis 3 is not just a punishment for his sin. It is also grace being given to Adam and Eve even after their sin. I'll turn back to Genesis 3. If you're still there, you can look with me in Genesis 3 and read what God says about why he kicks them out of the garden and why they will die. After the curse is given, it says, Therefore, the, let's see, no, verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, the Trinity, the Godhead, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove man out and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So what does God realize? He says, this man has sinned. And now he might take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. The tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden. And God says if he takes from that tree and lives forever, he's going to live forever in this sinful state. And so by God's grace, he kicks Adam out of the garden, condemning him to death. The death is a punishment for his sin, but it is also grace in that he won't live forever in his sinful state. He will die. Paul goes on to explain the extent of Adam's sin in verse 12. It spread to all men because all have sinned. Paul is explaining to a mostly Jewish Christian audience that death reigns even when there is no law. Continue to look with me at verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So what Paul says, and what Paul realizes the Jews are going to be asking, but, but wait, how is it that death has spread to all men when there was a nice little gap between Adam and Moses where there was no law given? God had given Adam a command. Adam directly disobeyed the command. Then God comes later and gives Moses the law and the commandments. And the Jews understand that when you break the commands of God, when you break the law, that you are worthy of death and punishment. But what they may have been asking is, what about that window of time between Adam and Moses when there was no law given? How can they be guilty of punishment for a, for a law that they didn't seem to have? There wasn't a command that we know of being given for them to disobey. So Paul goes ahead and cuts this off. This thought process off. For into the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. In other words, Paul is saying there was a law. There was a law written on the heart of man. And in Romans 1, we read 
what that is. The moral law, Paul says, is written on our hearts. We know what God expects naturally from us. He doesn't have to give a direct command like he gave to Adam. He says, even though the offense was different, even though they weren't disobeying a direct command that was given audibly from God or written down by God, he says, they knew that they should submit to their creator, that they should worship their creator, but they made images in the likeness of man, in the likeness of creeping and crawling animals and different things, and they bowed to them. And so they are guilty of idolatry. They are guilty of sin. So death reigned even from Adam to Moses, even when there was no law that was written down or given audibly. Death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, even though their sin wasn't like Adam's, and they didn't disobey some direct command of God. They were still guilty. But notice, we, we don't share Adam's guilt. We have our own. We only share Adam's punishment. We all get Adam's death, the punishment for his sin, but we are all guilty on our own. We don't get declared guilty of sin because of Adam's sin. We are guilty because of our own sin. We sin a lot on our own. We are receiving his punishment. We receive spiritual and physical death. Christ died for the punishment of our sins, not our guilt. Christ died for the punishment of our sin. Not our guilt. Why did Christ have to die? Because we deserve death. The punishment that we are to receive is death. So Christ had to die. He died for our punishment, not our guilt. But God won't condemn us because our faith is in Christ Jesus. God will declare us righteous and he will justify us because of what Christ has done for us. We have our own guilt, but God will look over our guilt and won't condemn us for our actions if our faith is in Jesus Christ. And look how he ends verse 14. And our, who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Adam is a type of Christ. Some people might look over that verse, but in this passage it's hard to skip over because God or Paul continues over and over to compare Christ and Adam. He goes back and forth between this. What does it mean that Adam is a type of Christ? A type in scripture is a divinely intended illustration of something else. A type in scripture is a divinely intended illustration of something else. So Adam is a type of Christ. He is intended by God to be an illustration of of Christ. What Christ will do. In what way does he do that? Adam came from the earth, but Jesus is the Lord from heaven. 1 Corinthians 15. Adam was tested in a garden, surrounded by beauty and love. Jesus was tempted in a wilderness, and he died on a cross, surrounded by hatred and ugliness. Adam was a thief and was cast out of paradise, but Jesus Christ turned to a thief and said, Thou shalt be with me in paradise. The Old Testament is the book of generations of Adam and it ends with a curse in Malachi 4, 6. The New Testament is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ and it ends with no more curse in Revelation 22. 
See, everything that Adam was, Christ is the opposite. He is the antitype of Adam. And so Paul ends by saying that Adam is a type of Christ, and then he moves on to talk about who Christ is, this second Adam. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God, and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. It's a great word to begin a verse after what we've just read. That death reigns over all men because all have sinned. Then verse 15 says, but. But. We know that there is better news coming. It's got a contrast. The death and the decay and the sin that existed in the verses previous. So he says, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression or the sin of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus Christ abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Christ's gift is greater than Adam's sin. In this passage, Paul contrasts Adam as our representative and what he did for us to what Christ as our representative has done for us. Christ's grace is greater than Adam's death. Paul says by grace, because of what Christ has done, you can overcome the spiritual death that you are living under because of what Adam has done. If you would place your faith in Jesus Christ, the effects of the curse will be reversed in your life. Christ's grace is greater than Adam's death. Secondly, because of the sin nature we receive from Adam, we are condemned. But because of Christ's death, God justifies us. When Adam sinned, we all were born from Adam and we all received that sin nature. And so, in sin... We were conceived, as David says. He said, in sin my mother conceived me. It wasn't that the act from which he was conceived was sinful. It was that David was sinful from conception. Is what David was saying. He says, we have this sin nature that begins in us at conception. And so, we received that from Adam. But when we place our faith in Christ, God justifies us in Christ. When he kills Christ on the cross, when he pours his wrath on Christ, he is able to look over our sin because we are justified. We are made right in Christ. In Adam, all die spiritually. In Christ, many will live spiritually. <coughs> and grace is greater Let's see, sorry. One man's disobedience made all sinners and one man's righteousness will make many righteousness. Or many righteous. Verse 18, So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification in life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. So Adam's disobedience made us all sinners. Christ's obedience makes us all righteous if our faith is in Him. 
Verse 20, the law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace is greater than sin. Grace can overcome sin. This is one of the most encouraging verses. Because even though my sin is great, Christ's grace abounds all the more. What Christ accomplished is so much greater than what Adam accomplished in his sin. Last, sin reigned in death, but righteousness leads to eternal life. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Though sin resulted in physical death, Christ's death will make us righteous and lead us to eternal life. We can live in Christ. The last thing I want you to notice about this whole passage, Paul keeps using this phrase, one man, the one man, to refer to both Adam and to refer to Christ. One man is used 14 times in this passage. Why does he keep putting an emphasis on one man? I mean, Christ is also God, right? So why does he keep putting the emphasis on this one man, Adam, and this one man, Christ? Because Christ had to be a man in order to reverse what had come through man. In order to be the antitype of Adam, in order to reverse and restore what was originally intended for creation to be, Christ had to be a man. There's no way that Christ can redeem us and make the world right unless he comes in the same manner which Adam was when he fell into sin. Christ had to be a man to reverse the effects of Adam's sin. He had to serve as our representative and he could only do that as a man. But he also had to be a sinless, perfect sacrifice to do any good on our behalf. And so he also had to be God. Christ is the eternal God-man. He came as man to represent us on the cross when he was crucified. But he also had to be sinless and perfect to be a sufficient sacrifice so that God can overlook our sin and not condemn us. But he's condemned our sin on the cross in Christ. Now we can have eternal life. Now we can be righteous. Now because of what Christ has done, we don't have to disobey. We can obey. We have power over our sin because of what Christ has done. And this is Paul's great encouragement to these people, to his audience, to us today, is that even greater than the benefits that we have now because of justification by faith, Greater than all of that is that Christ is going to restore us to our original purpose and to who we are supposed to be in Christ. Let's bow. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come to your word tonight to learn from your servant Paul to see how the effects of sin and death will be reversed because of what Christ has done. God, I pray that there are students here tonight who don't know what it means to have faith in Christ, who don't know what it means to live true life free 
from the slavery of sin, God, with the ability to obey you, to enjoy you. We know from Genesis that that's your purpose in giving us commands because obedience is required to fully enjoy a relationship with you. God, I pray that every day we would choose to obey. And God, that we would walk away from temptation. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for Christ's death. We thank you for the second Adam who has come. Who has reversed all the effects of the curse. And God, one day we will finally and fully see creation restored to what you intend. We thank you for all